Hey everybody, I'm Mike McDonald. My buddy Jesse Stratton loves some of the cheesiest movies ever made. He spent years telling me about them all, so now I'm finally watching these movies for the very first time. This is our podcast where we break those movies down together. This is the Celluloid Dumpster Fire. Hey everybody, welcome back. Today we're talking about the 2002 neo-noir crime thriller, The Salton Sea. Because it's hot and everything sucks, so let's go watch a movie. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> this, was, I, this was a really good movie. I enjoyed this one a lot. Like a lot of the movies we watch, it's not the best made movie. Yeah. But it's a really good story. Yeah. And the guy telling the story tells it in a pretty good way. Yeah, I really like the uh, his whole unreli- unreliable narrator trope used in this movie. Yeah. And it's really got kind movie. of a Tarantino aspect to it as well. Yeah. This movie was made by Castle Rock Entertainment. They bought the story specifically for DJ Caruso to direct. They spent $18 million on it. And at the U.S. and Canada box office, it made 764000 Yeah. And then they went to Europe and it made a couple hundred thousand more. So they made about a million dollars worldwide off of this movie. Really weird thing is uh, Crusoe, he wrote this as like a writing sample just to show like his chops, you know, and yeah. like to get his foot in the door. He didn't think it would ever get made. It was just like, eh, it's just something to show people so I can get a job. And Castle yeah. Rock look at it and they're like, nah, we're all over this. This is the next Castle thing. Rock bought it as a comedy thriller. And it works. I mean, there's not much comedy, but the comedy that is in there works really well for the tone of the movie. Yeah. There's a another 2016 movie by the same name about a woman who runs over either an animal or a person. We're never really sure which. And is witnessed by a hitchhiker who blackmails her and then it turns into kind of Thelma and Louise thing. Yeah, I've seen, or I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen people talking about it and stuff. Yeah. But I haven't seen that one yet. This movie's rated R. It runs an hour and 43 minutes. It's a really long movie, but it's it's all used. All that time is used. Yeah, it's it's fast too. I mean, yeah. It's like, you know, you, you go in and it starts off a little bit slow and then it speeds up and then there's like a character shift. You get the like a flashback that kind of slows it down and then it, it hits gear and it goes back in the super fast. Yep. Critics were mixed on it. It's got a 63% uh, rating on Rotten Tomatoes audiences. However, not so mixed. It's got an 82% audience score. Oh, yeah. Even Roger Ebert was mixed in his review of it. He hated the storyline, but he loved the characters. Yeah. Everybody really fucking pops off the screen. Like, yeah. Usually, like in a movie, it's got like one or two people that really nail, nail their characters, and the rest are kind of like, you know, shuffling. This one, every character, even like small background characters, are like perfect. Right. You know? Yeah. Your little throwaway characters like Jimmy. Well, there's a couple cameos in there. They're they're still really, really good characters. Really Cujo. Compelling characters. Yeah, Cujo. 
most of the critics seem to think this was an old derivative plot with interesting characters. Like I said, Stephen Holden of the New York Times said the film was, quote, blatantly recycled moods and images from other recent films, which it compacts into a formula of its own. From Heat, it borrows a noirish, twilighted despair. From Pulp Fiction, a fondness for grotesque caricature. From Requiem for a Dream, a contorted, druggy ambiance. And from Fight Club, a surrealist bravado and choked back super macho cool. All that borrowing lends the salt and sea style to burn, but little personality of its own, end quote. That's... That's highly accurate, though. Yeah, it really is. It takes the best part of kind of late movies. Yeah. Yeah. The new art. Jams them all into one story. Yeah, it's good. It's like a soup, you know? Yep. Directed by DJ Caruso. Most of his directing history is for television. He got his start as an intern in the product placement division at Disney Studios. Notable films include I Am Number Four, Eagle Eye, and Triple X, Return of Xander Cage. I gotta see that. That sounds... Oh, wait. That's the sequel to Triple X. Yeah, okay, yeah, no, I've seen that. Yeah. Oh, God, no. Okay, that's crap. Crusoe's <laughs> 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 done a couple of good movies in there. Uh, was it Eagle Eye? Yeah. That one's all right. There's another one. I can't remember the title to it. It was uh, like... I think it was the second movie he made. Like after this one, I remember it was pretty good. It was good in the uh, movie gallery. Okay. I just can't remember the title of it right now. Screenplay was written by Tony Gayton, who also wrote Murder by Numbers and Faster. And probably one of the characters that stands out the most in this movie, Val Kilmer's tattoos, were done by Ken Diaz. And he did makeup on Black Panther, Training Day, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, and Dead Man's Chest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that back tattoo is really cool that he's got. Yeah. Uh, I really like that. But uh, I like how the tattoos that he has on his body, I mean, they they kind of look, you know, kind of crappy. But right. they're they're kind of integral. They, like, they tell a story, you know, because so, he's got, like, they right. incorporated into his body and shit. So it's like it kind of tells a story about his backstory without even having to have a backstory. Exactly. Even though you can get the backstory, yeah. Movie stars Val Kilmer as Danny Parker, a.k.a. Tom Van Allen. Val Kilmer, of course, known for The Doors, Real Genius, Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Tombstone, and Batman Forever. And uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Yes. I'm always the... going to throw that in there. The 96 remake of the 1977 film, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Now, during the filming of that movie, he somehow got a reputation for being really hard to work with. And most people who have worked with him after that have said that that opinion's a load of crap. Yeah. I don't know, man. So it sounds like, crazy. I mean, to be fair, they made a documentary about how the making of The Island of Dr. Moreau was a colossal shitstorm. Yeah, that was a good movie. So it sounds like there were more problems there than Val Kilmer could ever have been credited with. Oh, yeah. So somebody put together a bad team. They had a bad time making a movie. 
and had to blame it on somebody. So they all blamed on 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 the star. I don't think it was like all of him, but uh, like halfway through, I know he's dealing with some personal shit during the making of that movie. But like halfway through, yeah. he did kind of go crazy. But if you worked on that movie, you know. But like halfway point, everybody went crazy on the production of that movie. Right. Which happens when you're doing a bad job of making a movie. Even if it turns out to be a good movie, if you're doing a bad job of making it, yeah. everybody's going to have a bad time and it's going to come out. Oh, yeah. And then in the late 20 teens, Val Kilmer underwent several surgeries and chemo and radiation for throat cancer, which mostly ruined his voice. He worked with the company to create a synthetic voice for him and kind of an AI voice. However, through a lot of speech therapy and post-production work, they were able to use his actual voice in Top Gun Maverick. Vincent D'Onofrio plays Pooh Bear, which is probably my favorite character in the entire movie. Oh, man. Yeah, dude. That guy is one of my favorite actors. Doesn't matter what he's in. He's going to put himself like 110% into whatever, you know. I mean, Absolutely. That guy- Vincent D'Onofrio, of course, known as Private Pile in Full Metal Jacket, also appeared in Mystic Pizza, Ed Wood, Men in Black, The Cell, Jurassic World, and was the lead in Law and Order Criminal Intent. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Peter Sarsgaard as Jimmy the Finn. He's appeared in The Batman, The Batman. Of all the Batman movies, to name one The Batman just seems bizarre. Yeah. Uh, it was really weird when it first came out on HBO when, uh, like you or HBO Max, and when you select it, yeah, for some reason it was misspelled and it said the Batman. Okay, I thought that was weird. Uh, I was like, I'm watching. It. I was like, oh my god, I'm watching the Batman. Uh, he was also in Garden State, The Green Lantern, and Dope Sick. Yeah, I loved him in uh, Garden State. That was a really good movie. Uh, he's good in this movie. I really like his character. Um, I do too. Yeah. Doug Hutchison as Gus Morgan. He's appeared in the X-Files, all of the 90s and early 2000s crime drama procedurals. I Am Sam, Punisher Warzone, The Green Mile, and he was the voice of a federal marshal in Far Cry 5. Yeah, and, like, don't get me started. that guy's kind of a dick, like, real life. Yeah. Um, I don't like him. If you know him, you know what the shit he did, you know, and I'm, I'm just, um, but... It gets real good. He like you really hate that guy in movies and you really hate him in real life. So he's he's kind of I mean, like, you're supposed to hate him in the movies. Yeah. But I, I can see where he's like, you know, he gets his inspiration for his characters from. Yeah. He's basically playing himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony LaPaglia as Al Garcetti. He's appeared in Without a Trace. So I married an axe murderer, Frazier, and Empire Records. Hell yeah, Empire Records. Love that movie. And I like I like this actor. He did, I don't see him like I mostly remember him from like TV shows and shit, or he's like a cop right. in some action movie. Yep. Like like this, but like uh, yeah, he's a great, great actor. Fucking love Empire Records. And my favorite character one of my favorite character actors, Luis Guzman as Quincy. Yeah. Oh man, fucking Louis! Uh, man, uh, what was it? Carlito's way. Yep, I love him in Carlito's way, and uh, he was he was on uh, Community. He was also in Traffic, Boogie Nights, that Adam Sandler, Jack Nicholson mess, Anger Management. Oh, he was Frank Gallagher's hobo friend Mikey in Shameless. 
Yeah, and he just played uh, uh, Gomez Adams in that Wednesday on Netflix. Nice. Yeah, they perfect casting. He really is a good Gomez. It looks like the old uh, comic strip Adams Family, you know. Like okay. From. So yeah, like I can he, see that. He looks perfect. Yeah, like the way they got the hair and shit. Yeah, and he was the voice of Ricardo Diaz in Grand Theft Auto Vice City Stories. Oh yeah. I, I mean, this that. guy's I... this guy's always working. He's been in somewhere between one and five film, television, or voice projects every year since 1985. Yeah, a fucking workhorse, I guess. Yeah. Deborah Kara Unger as Colette. She's appeared in Prisoners of the Sun, Highlander, The Final Dimension, and Bangkok Hilton. And we get cameos by Danny Trejo as Little Bill and Meatloaf as Bo. <laughs> Which is weird because we never hear Bo's name. We just see some guy looking creepy. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of like, uh, like the random people and stuff. There's, there's like a lot of kind of famous people in here. Yeah. Movie opens with Tom Van Allen, or is it Danny Parker sitting on the floor of an apartment building playing the trumpet while the apartment burns around him? And it's the kind of music that you would hear at the opening during the voiceover of one of those down-on-his-luck P.I. films describing a woman who just walked into his office? Yeah, like slow, painful jazz. <laughs> <laughs> and just like those P.I. movies, we get a voiceover telling the story of his double life as a drug addict and the history of methamphetamine. Cut to a modern drug house party filled with suspiciously healthy-looking addicts. In a very well lit meth house. Yeah, no, it looks like like uh, I don't know. Was was that old Robin Leach show? Oh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. It's like that, but the dr druggy version of it. So it's like, yes. yeah, things like, well, this should be. Wait, this isn't right, but yeah, no, it's it's fucking crazy. Yeah, it's like somebody watched Reefer Madness and then said, okay, let's use this as reference material to make a re uh, meth house. <laughs> yeah. Because it's very well lit. All the lamps have shades. It's clean. Um, it's clean. The people in it are clean. And like I said, pretty healthy looking. The walls. Now, this is like the exact opposite of Jesse Pinkman's house in Breaking Bad. Yeah. Because the walls are very artfully decorated with the pages of an art and culture magazine. Whereas in Jesse Pinkman's house, they'd spray painted fuck you all over the walls. Yeah. It's, uh, it was like, uh, it's, it's still kind of like Hollywood. Like, it's not like the realistic, like, depictions that you see in, like, later. Like, yeah, like, uh, what was that show you just mentioned? No, Breaking Bad. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's not like Breaking Bad. It's like, because, like, in that, like, you know, that's more of, like, a realistic depiction. And this shit is just, like, crazy Hollywood, turn it to 11, like, kind of type shit. Yeah. Danny and Jimmy are going to make a run to get more gap because they are out. They head to a hotel to see Bobby. I love Bobby. Bobby yeah. Ocean. That guy's been in a bunch of movies and TV shows. Bobby's got a woman trapped under the mattress of the bed in the hotel room. And he's got a can of bug spray. Because spiders are about to come crawling out of his arm, and by God, he's going to be ready for them. Yeah, Bobby's off, off the Bobby's, deep end. Yeah, 
Uh, Bobby is higher than giraffe balls and has a harpoon gun. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't say it perfectly. Yeah, it was just that was it. Round nose. <laughs> He's pointing the harpoon gun at Jimmy, demanding to know if he brought the plastic men. And they don't know what, what he's talking about. But they just want to buy six eight balls. So Bobby's going to get that for him. And he starts to open the dresser drawer. And he says, I don't mean to impose, but I am the ocean. Yeah. Immediately cut to Jimmy and Danny standing outside the hotel room when Bobby shoots the harpoons through the door. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they got the drugs or not. He was going to open the drawer, and then he's shooting at him. Who knows? Next, Jimmy and Danny are walking down the middle of the street, approaching a stopped school bus at at a school crossing, having a very philosophical conversation about how do you know when you're doing the right thing. And Jimmy's idea is, you know you're doing the right thing because people smile, and then you say thank you. Apparently, they got the drugs they went after because when we get back to the house, we get a massive tweaker montage. Yeah. Followed by everybody in various stages of passed out. Yeah, yeah. And a voiceover narration about hitting rock bottom. Danny spills his beer on the floor and apparently knows what he needs to do. He heads to a payphone. Because he's an informant, and he's calling the sheriff's department to tell his handlers about Bobby Ocean. He gives them details about Bobby's supply, how much drugs he has and where it is, about the weapons that he has, that there's a Mrs. Ocean trapped in the mattress, and also, apparently, there was a kid there, too. Yeah, this is really cool, the way they shot that. It's like a... Like where's Waldo like type thing is like the camera yeah. is like you've already seen the scene stuff so like then the camera does like this like little zoom in thing and shows you how he saw that shit like he saw the kid reflected in the mirror in the bathroom you know and yep next day a crowd is gathered outside the hotel and Danny is in the crowd the woman that was under the mattress and her young daughter are standing by a railing looking down at the street. And Bobby is lying dead on the pavement. He's been shot in the chest. Cut to later that night, Danny is drunk and enters an apartment building. Colette, his neighbor from across the hall, is trying to get the door open with a bag of groceries in her hands. But of course, the bag rips open and her groceries go all over the place. So she gets the door open and just starts kicking the groceries inside. (laughs) I feel like I've lived that. Yeah, it's happened to us all. (laughs) Danny introduces himself when she op- she gets in and slams the door and she's she's forgot some stuff and Danny picks it up and says, "Hey, you left some Japanese stuff out here." <laughs> he introduces himself and then heads over to his place to shower the green dye out of his hair. Then he gets this box out of the closet. Inside this box is a suit and a hat a driver's license with the name Tom Van Allen on it, a photograph of a woman, and a trumpet. And so apparently, uh, after he spends time as an addict, as Danny Parker, when he goes home, 
he has to remind himself that he is Tom Van Allen and he's a trumpet player. It's like some kind of weird Batman like type thing, right? Yeah. It's uh I'm gonna go be a junkie for like, you know, a week and then I'm gonna come home and I'm gonna turn into this like sn- smooth jazz listening guy. Yeah. We see images of Tom's late wife Liz as he plays that sad trumpet tune and flashback to them at the Salton Sea. The the Salton Sea is an interesting story. It's a it's a saltwater sea in Southern California near the near the Mexican border. Because um the it doesn't have an outlet, only an inlet. Water runs off of agricultural fields into this. And because it leaches fertilizer out of the agricultural land, the Salton Sea is actually saltier than the ocean. And all this fertilizer caused algae blooms to just get way out of control and killed a bunch of fish there. Apparently, storms come through and stir up the muck, and it actually spreads botulism through the tilapia that were living in the the sea. Damn. And that would kill the fish, and then birds would eat the the dead fish. And apparently in the 90s, that ended up killing like 14,000 birds around that sea. Shit. Um, (laughs) There were boat docks and such around there because, you know, you could go out and and it was a recreational, uh, like a lake. uh, But then receding water levels have stranded all of those. So the entire and and then the mud dried up and windstorms blew the mud around with all the diseases that were in it. And so the Salton Sea, by the early 2000s, had become one of the largest ecological disaster areas in Southern California. Yeah, it's just a big, like, death, like, it's like a desert yes. now, right? Well, there's actually a plan to to add water to it to try to, because, I mean, it's the mud that is the problem, the dirt on the, on the sea floor that is the problem. And so the solution to that is to keep that stuff underwater. So they're trying to figure out how to bring in seawater to raise the water level. Yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's a mess. Yeah, it's, it's so nice. <laughs> well, Tom has switched back to Danny again. He is meeting his handlers in a Catholic church. He's talking to Gus Morgan, trying to find out why Al Garcetti doesn't like him. And Morgan explains that Garcetti hates everybody, including dolphins, and you cannot trust somebody who doesn't like dolphins. Can you imagine that? A man who hates dolphins? <laughs> well, Garcetti tells Danny that a, a Mexican drug dealer he informed on has a lot of pull with a gang called the Mexicali Boys, and the gang wants to kill Danny. So Danny needs to disappear. The cops are not going to protect him. They've done everything they can for him. They've had his felony reduced to a misdemeanor, and he needs to get gone. When Danny leaves, he is being followed by a silver car, so he ducks into an alleyway, and he hides under a bunch of trash bags. Well, the car follows him into the alley and stops, but a trash truck pulls right up behind it and starts blowing their horn, so the car leaves. Next, we see Danny and Jimmy buying a gun from a young man who he's got a script and he's going to stick to that script. 
Oh man, I love this character. He's cool as shit. He uh he's got a very well written script, but I mean he delivers it like he's reading a script. Yeah, but like the, the, the like the, you know he's a salesman, so it's like it's supposed to be like that. He's like he's no bullshit. He's just I I got what you want. You got what I want. Let's just do this. You know. Yeah. Well, apparently they got a gun, and afterward, Jimmy is kind of asking, why Why? Why do you need a gun? And, and Danny says, well, it's a dangerous world. Cut back to Danny's apartment. Colette has locked Quincy out of the apartment. He's beating on the door, yelling at her to let him in, and Danny's looking at him. He says, you mad-dogging me, bro? And he says, no, I was just admiring your boots. Did you get those locally? Yeah. Oh man, that was so smooth. Like to say what you say about Valcom or whatever, but like when he when he's acting a movie and he's gotta be smooth. Yeah. He's smooth, man. The kick and yeah, it's great. Yeah. Danny goes into his apartment after that and he's getting his stuff out of the box and can hear Quincy beating on Colette across the hall. Cut to Danny in the park when a truck with a desert scene painted on the side of it, pulls up. This is Bubba, a Korean cowboy from Texas. I just got a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I like him. Yeah, he's good in everything he's in. Well, Danny's got a proposition for him, and we'll find out about that later. Because we immediately <laughs> cut to Jimmy. There's a lot of story being teased here. Yeah. But we just jump around, and you get a piece here and a piece here. And this is what I meant with it being very Tarantino-like, because we're going to get a bit here and a bit here and a bit here, and you have to trust that later in the film it'll come back around and tie them all together. Oh, yeah. If there's one thing that this movie does well is foreshadowing. Even, like, just a little bit of a thing, a little flicker, is going to come back and pay off in the end. Yeah. I mean, we're 20 minutes into this movie, and it's all set up still. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Danny and Jimmy. Danny sells Jimmy he needs. He's in dire need of cash, which Jimmy finds hilarious. But not because that he needs money, but the way he said it. He sounds fancy. Dire need of cash. I say good man. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to do a big score with Pooh Bear, and Jimmy knows Big Bill, one of Pooh Bear's dealers. Jimmy tries to warn Danny away from doing anything with Pooh Bear because Pooh Bear is pure evil. But Danny's really serious. Bubba wants to buy a quarter, and Danny says, that's, that's too small time. Pooh Bear won't do anything with that. He's a quarter million dollars. Oh, shit. Yeah, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. Bubba wants to buy a quarter million dollars worth of meth, and in return... Danny will get $25,000 and Jimmy will get five grand just for driving him out there. Damn. Yeah. So we cut to Jimmy and Danny in Jimmy's truck, which is missing most of the floorboard. <laughs> yeah. He's trying to figure out where to put his feet as the pavement. You can see the pavement underneath. Uh, it looks like some of the trucks I was in in the 70s. Yeah. My dad used to have a work truck that was like that. Yeah. My dad had a truck that, like that, that he had actually cut a piece of plywood and laid it in there, so there was some place to put. <laughs> Old Chevy <laughs> trucks. Yep. Jimmy explains that they call him Pooh Bear because he doesn't have a nose. That makes sense, right? Uh, well, it's like a little explanation. It does. 
Yeah, so like uh, apparently, you know, Winnie the Pooh gets his head stuck in the honey pot all the time, and Pooh Bear did so much mess that they had to cut his nose off. So it's like Pooh Bear getting his nose stuck in the honey pot. So they call him Pooh Bear. Plus also, he just... hasn't slept in at least a year. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Danny finds that a little hard to believe, and he says, "How do you know?" He says, "I've never seen the man sleep." Danny asks, "Well, have you seen Queen Elizabeth sleep?" And he says, is no. Is she a tweaker? <laughs> that was a great line. That was really funny. Was... Yeah, that was awesome. Next, we see a tattered American flag flying over a yard. Pooh Bear. This is Pooh Bear's place. And he's got a plan. They are recreating the assassination of John F. Kennedy to prove there was a third shooter. Yeah. They've got a remote control monster truck that they've made a limousine body for. And they got four pigeons loaded into it. Uh, One of them has a little Jackie Kennedy pillbox hat on. Yeah. He tells the guys to open fire. So Oswald, the grassy knoll, and the in undeniable third shooter who pops up out of a hole in the ground, open fire on the unsuspecting pigeon. Uh, I was flipping through cable late one night, and I happened to have on this scene. And this, uh, this is how I discovered the movie, right? And, like, no context, it's just this scene, and I'm like, what's what's the name of this fucking movie? I have to know. Yeah, if I was flipping channels and I saw this scene, this is where I'm staying for the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, this is how I discovered the movie, was this one scene. I've seen it a couple, you know, dozen times since then, but uh, yeah, man, that that's one way to fucking open your eye right there to a movie is... yeah. Oh, look at the president. Oh, look at his wife. <laughs> and she's so pretty. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck is this, man? <laughs> a Pooh Bear does have a plastic nose on, too. Yeah. And he, he squeaks and shit when he talks, where uh, Vincent D'Onofrio was in character. He just showed up on set dressed like that with his hair like that. And just, he had like a weird, uneven farmer's tan, you know, and. Yeah. He just stayed in character the entire movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, I mean that's the way so many actors do is, is you know, when they're on set, that's, that they're that character. Somebody was asked about working with Val Kilmer on Tombstone and, yeah. and what he was like doing that. And he I said, I don't know. Him. I never yeah, met I never Val met Kilmer. I can tell you all about Doc Holliday, but I never met Val Kilmer. I remember that interview. That was really good. Yeah. And it's the same way with Tom Hanks in when when they were making Forrest Gump. He he would show up in the morning for makeup, hair and makeup, and everybody called him Forrest. Nobody called him Tom. And he, Sally Field said the whole time they were there, he never called her anything but mama because that's what Forrest Gump would call his mama. Yeah. Uh, he and was in character like the whole it. time. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, uh, D'Onofrio said that um, in researching this role, he learned that some people who have had to have their nose removed, most of them from cancer, but I'm sure there have been a few for drugs, they have trouble making some consonant sounds, and so they will squeak at the end of words like that. And, and so he, he started doing that. Well, inside, Danny and Pooh Bear are discussing the sale while a girl feeds him scrambled eggs and something. 
And apparently <laughs> it's really bad because he makes Danny take a bite and Danny immediately has to wash it down with some beer. Danny offers $14,000 a kilo for meth and Pooh Bear says he only deals in U.S. pounds. So Danny has to do some quick math in his head and comes to 40 pounds at $6,000 a pound. Now Pooh Bear... And he says, yeah, whatever, whatever. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. And Danny said, I, I kind of get the feeling you're not taking me seriously. And that's when we find out that Pooh Bear is just pissed because he thinks he's being lowballed. And he explains how he killed a man who shorted him $11 on a transaction. So he put the guy's head in a vice and cut it open and was looking at his brain and said, now what kind of guy... Which short me $11, that's a guy who's not using his brain, so he doesn't even need this. So I took it out, put it in the freezer, and every once in a while he cuts a bit off and mixes it with his scrambled eggs. So maybe Danny just ate eggs and human brains? Could be. <laughs> well, they start haggling, and Danny's going to walk away uh, until they agree on $8,000 a pound. He also reveals that those were actually beef brains in the scrambled eggs. It's still pretty nasty. Yeah. I'm a dog. I'm a dog. He grabs the oven mitts and puts them to his head like floppy ears. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Vincent, we love you, baby. Is the He's awesome. National treasure, yeah. Driving home, Jimmy has a question. He wants to know what JFK stands for. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and Danny tells him, and he says, Danny, thanks for not laughing at me. <laughs> Cut to a bar with an old man, or like a diner maybe, and an old man in a wheelchair doing karaoke. He is singing Walk on the Wild Side. I fucking love Lou Reed. Me too. Oh, I've wait. always liked Lou Reed. I had a problem with Lou Reed. You know, it, it's kind of... Hard to to take a guy seriously, uh, a multimillionaire who heroined his way through two livers singing songs telling how evil the rich people are. Yeah. But, you know, everybody's got their demons. I still like the song. This is Cujo's big heist, isn't it? This is Cujo's big heist. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great, too, because Cujo's got a big plan. They are going to break into a lab, accost a courier, and steal Bob Hope's stool sample so they can sell it on eBay. Hell yeah. What could go wrong? Let's get this money. <laughs> <laughs> well, as Cujo is laying out his plan, Danny is imagining how it's actually going to go down. And that's, no, that's the part of this that I love. That's how it actually did go down. <laughs> <laughs> you get like a flash forward of like, all right, it's like they're like, hey, Danny, you in? It's like, no, nah, I'm not in, you know, because they went off and did this shit. And that's what happened. So Danny and Creeper were supposed to be the uh, A team, the alpha team. It's great because they've got the alpha team and the number two team. Yeah. <laughs> they're supposed to be in the elevator with wireless headsets on. So. We get a shot of Creeper passed out, standing up in the elevator, drooling. Drooling a, a, like a fucking, like, yeah, it's like cartoon drool. It's just like this big, 
<laughs> like, you see those cartoons where like kids got like a booger hanging out his nose and he goes all the way to the ground and shit. <laughs> it's like that, but with drool, it's gross. Cujo is going to be the number two team. He says Creeper is going to cut the courier off at the stairwell and the elevator door opens and it dings and that wakes Creeper up and he jumps out into the lobby doing really bad karate. <laughs> like if I was to do Bruce Lee, maybe. Cujo says that faced with superior numbers and high-tech weapons, the courier will have no choice but to do as they say. And we get a shot of Cujo threatening the courier with a dust buster. <laughs> Give me a fucking kick. It's just like, Ugh. Then after they get the stool sample, both teams will rappel down the staircase. We get a shot of Cujo falling down the stairs. The container with the turd sample busts open. So he scoops it up. He walks outside and promptly gets run over by an ambulance. <laughs> I really run this guy over too, like blah blah blah. <laughs> the whole time, it's like that old man is just singing "Take a Walk on the Wild Side." The whole yeah. time, he so it's, nothing it's stops perfect. him. He's got to finish the song. The setup, the cinematography, and the sound work is so great in this little fucking Cujo's Big Heist, like little fucking thing. That shit, that's like a like a small movie in itself. Also going on in the background. Quincy and Colette are there, and they are making out until he shoves her into a booth and leaves. Yeah, and then she totally just makes eye contact with her man, like, across the room. Yeah. Well, Danny's going to pass on Cujo's big heist. He's, he's not interested in this one. Yeah, it's like, no, I'm out. Back at the apartment complex, Colette is crying by the elevator. Apparently, Quincy threw her out. Danny heads into his apartment and then ends up at a diner with Colette. He asks her why she doesn't just leave Quincy, and she says it's just not that easy. It's not that simple. She has a kid who is staying with her grandmother while Colette looks for another job. Next, we see Danny meeting with Bubba. Bubba doesn't want to do a big deal. He wants to do a much smaller buy first. He wants to buy $60,000 worth. And Danny's kind of upset about this, that, um, that, that Pooh Bear's not going to go for it. Around the corner, we see that uh, Morgan and Garcetti have discovered Danny's plans, and they're not happy at all. As Danny's leaving, they confront him in an alley and tase him and beat the crap out of him. They take him to a, a, an abandoned building where they're going to question him about this deal. And Danny just said that, you know, they told him to disappear. He was trying to disappear. He just needed to get some money first. And, uh, you know, then, uh, then he was going to vanish. And now they want Danny to roll over on Bubba and Pooh Bear. After they let Danny go out on the street, he sees that silver car coming toward him again, and he takes off running. Next day, Danny is talking to Morgan and Garcetti again. They've got info about Pooh Bear. Apparently, he served five years in prison for beating a pimp to death with a wheelchair, Damn. which sounds exactly like Pooh Bear. Yeah, no, it's, it's the same guy. <laughs> and all the drugs he sells, he gets from robbing other dealers. Danny asks him about the silver car he's been seeing. It turns out it belongs to a third grade teacher. With the license plate, I forgive. Yeah. 
that third grade teacher is um, Danny's mother-in-law. And Danny is meeting with his in-laws. Apparently, they are very religious people, and they have tracked him down because they're worried about him, and they want to help him get clean, but he's not interested. Well, Danny is coming to see Pooh Bear. When he gets there, Big Bill and Little Bill search him and take his money. He's got $10,000 in his pocket. He tells them it's for Pooh Bear, but they just take it. They take him in to see Pooh Bear, and Pooh Bear wants him to pull his pants down to prove he isn't wearing a wire. When Pooh Bear turns around, he doesn't have his plastic nose on, so he's just got the nose hole in his face. Yeah, it's like Skeletor. And Big Bill is holding a flintlock pistol on him. Yeah. <laughs> just this antique pistol, holding it sideways, of course. Sideways. He's yeah, an no, OG. That's a kill shot. <laughs> that's a kill shot. <laughs> Pooh Bear is going to put Danny's wiener in a cage with a starving rabid badger named Captain Steubing because he thinks Danny's a snitch. <laughs> and uh, Danny doesn't want to do it, so Pooh Bear just reaches down and grabs his wiener and puts it in the cage. That's when Danny throws little Bill under the bus and accuses him of trying to cut Pooh Bear out. And... He's got $10,000 in his pocket that I was bringing to you, but he took it from me and he wasn't going to tell you about it. Cut to the kitchen where Danny and Pooh Bear are talking as Big Bill turns Captain Steubing loose on Little Bill in the other room. Pooh Bear gives Danny a, a bag of meth in like a gro one of those plastic grocery store bags. Yeah. And uh, Danny puts that in his bag really quick. Pooh Bear says Danny's making him nervous. He thinks Danny might back out. But no, Danny's good. He's going he's gonna to go through with the deal. Back at his apartment, Colette is knocking on the door. Quincy has been beating her again. He lets her in, and she kisses him because, well, that's how she knows how to... That's the only way she knows to show gratitude to a guy. Danny is suddenly noble. He's not going to do that anymore. Um, so she starts to leave, but he asks her to stay because he wants to talk. And he tells the story about the night he and his uh, wife, Liz, were at Bo's. Apparently, Bo cooks and sells meth. While Danny is in the bathroom, the dogs start to go nuts outside. A man bursts in the front door and starts shooting with an automatic weapon and just, just shooting up the entire house. Liz is hiding behind a chair. Danny's in the bathroom. He's looking out through bullet holes in the wall, and he can see Liz hiding behind the chair. She's holding on to a curtain, and as the gunman starts to leave, she pulls on that curtain just a little too hard and snaps one of the rings off, and it makes noise, so the gunman turns around and comes back. He walks up to her, puts a gun to her head, and as Danny watches from inside the bathroom, he shoots Liz. Danny is, is all tore up because apparently he didn't do anything to stop it, and he should have. He wants to do something good like helping Colette, so he gives her a bag of drugs. Tells her she needs to hide it somewhere in the apartment where Quincy won't find it. Once she's done that, leave the apartment and call Danny's pager number because he's a, a rat. And he will call his people at the police department and they will take care of Quincy and she'll never have to see him again. Next day, we see Colette sitting by a tree across the street as the cops search Quincy and the apartment. And Quincy is yelling, you, you don't have it. I don't have anything. There's no drugs here. 
Cut to Danny in the back seat of the cop car with Morgan and Garcetti. He calls Bubba. They are headed to Pooh Bear's to make the deal, and they're going to bust Pooh Bear. They drop Danny off in the middle of the street, and he heads down the road when Bubba pulls up in his pickup truck. He's going to take Danny to meet the team. And that's when we find out that Bubba is an FBI agent. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Tom Van Allen, a.k.a. Danny Parker, has been running a one-man undercover operation to avenge his wife's murder. And we get Bubba's explanation of the whole thing peppered with flashbacks. Yeah. Apparently, the forensics team found a red hair near Danny's wife's body. Danny remembers seeing a red-haired man wearing a very distinctive ring at a gas station that they always stopped at near the Salton Sea. The ring was from the same college where, Dan where Tom's father taught music, so he used the college yearbook, I guess, to identify the only red-haired man that ever went to school there, Gus Morgan. He tracked Morgan to the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, that's when Tom Van Allen developed the persona of Danny Parker and rear-ended Morgan and Garcetti in a ploy to become their confidential informant to determine if both of them were corrupt and to get close enough to get his revenge. Then Danny, when, when he couldn't get a deal big enough to get them, to get them both to, to get involved directly, then he called Bubba to arrange something. To arrange a big deal. Yeah. Uh, the, the FBI tipped off Morgan and Garcetti to the big deal he wanted to pull. And they planted a fake police record on Bubba. And Morgan and Garcetti, of course, took the bait. So now all of Bubba's FBI team is involved in trying to take down these two corrupt cops. It's getting a little deep, isn't it? It is. We're like several layers of inception in now. Yeah, it's a crazy movie, man. <laughs> well, the next day, Danny and Jimmy are talking. Uh, Danny gives Jimmy $10,000 to do a favor for him instead of coming with him on this deal. And Jimmy's in. He doesn't even want to know what the favor is. He's in because Danny is his best friend. In fact, he even got Danny's face tattooed on his arm. No. Well, Sort of his face, because he didn't have a picture of Danny, so he just had to describe him to the tattoo artist. He did a pretty good job. I he mean, actually did do a pretty good job. I mean, it looks like a face, even. <laughs> it doesn't look at all like a wiener. I got his hair right. Yeah. Well, Danny comes clean to Jimmy and explains, you know, I'm, I'm a rat. Have been the whole time you've known me. And Jimmy's hurt, but then decides... You know, why, why, you probably don't even care about me. And so, of course I care about you. You're my only friend, Jimmy. So Jimmy's in. He, he's in. Cut to the FBI following Danny as Danny pulls over to buy cigarettes. He goes into a store uh, to get some cigarettes. He comes out, gets back in his car, and they all drive away. The FBI team that we met earlier has this entire area staked out. They've got cars all over the place. They even got a guy up on a ladder changing light bulbs in the sign at the hotel. Mm -hmm. I guess because they couldn't find a lineman from the electric company to get up on a pole. And then Danny heads into one of the rooms at the hotel. This room is outfitted with hidden cameras and the FBI is watching. 
That's when Bubba pulls up and he goes into the hotel room, but that's not Danny sitting in that hotel room. It's Jimmy dressed like Danny. And he said that Danny told him to tell him he's sorry and he's going to take care of things himself. Double cross on a double cross. I know. At night, Morgan and Garcetti are watching Pooh Bear's place while Danny pulls up on a motorcycle. They are planning to steal the $250,000 that Danny has. Well, Danny heads into Pooh Bear's with the money. Of course, gets searched again. Pooh Bear is playing a card game with a bunch of other people that he calls Hole in the Head. Uh, Danny disrupts the game when he accidentally, on purpose, knocks a beer into a guy's lap. As soon as the guy gets up, Danny takes his seat. Apparently, Danny really wanted to sit there. And as soon as he sits down, we find out why, because he starts reaching around under the table. Apparently, he had taped a gun to the bottom of that table weeks ago. Yep. And nobody noticed. They open up the uh, duffel bag and see all the money, and Pooh Bear starts acting real suspicious. He starts calling Big Bill to come in here. You might want to see all this money. It's a whole lot of money, Bill. Well, Bill comes in shooting. Danny ducks out of the way, and he shoots one of the guys that's there. Uh, about that time, Danny actually gets the gun loose from under the table and shoots everybody else in the room. He ends up shooting Pooh Bear in the leg, which I guess causes his lighter to explode and catch his pants on fire. <laughs> yeah, that was fucked up. Once everybody's down, Danny starts walking over to Pooh Bear, who yells, Will you just leave? and shoots him four times in the chest. So now Danny's down, too. Pooh Bear gets up. He's in a lot of pain. He's babbling incoherently about wanting to be a cowboy. You're just a little boy. You're just a little boy on a, <laughs> on a horse. Yeah, he's going crazy. This is like uh, those uh, top of the world now, ma, type moments that you see gangsters do, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's going uh, He's going full force on this. He's, he's trying to get that Oscar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> He takes that duffel bag of money into the living room, turns on a videotape, I guess, of of him and his parents singing some cowboy song. Yeah, it's weird. It's really weird. Yeah. As he prepares a syringe full of some kind of drug, and he's just about to inject it into his own neck when one of the cops walks up behind him and shoots Pooh Bear in the back of the head. Well, Morgan and Garcetti come into the house, and they see all the bodies in the kitchen, including Danny dead in the kitchen. It was Garcetti that shot Pooh Bear in the back of the head. That's when we find out that Danny actually isn't dead. He pulls open his shirt to reveal he was wearing a bulletproof vest. Dun, dun, dun. So he recovers his gun, and he heads after Morgan and Garcetti, and he's kind of crawling through the kitchen, which we flash back to the house at the Salton Sea, and he's crawling out of the bathroom to be near his wife Liz as she dies. Danny walks up behind Garcetti and shoots him, and then he shoots Morgan in the shoulder. Morgan, of course, is the red-haired guy that killed his wife. That's when he tells Morgan that he's not Danny Parker, he's really Tom Van Allen. And then he asks Morgan, what would you do? If you were at a house in the Salton Sea and you were in the bathroom and your wife was hiding behind a chair and a guy came out to shoot her, what would you do? Would you hide or would you fight? And Morgan says, I don't know. So he shoots him in the leg. 
and asks him again. And he actually puts the gun like right up to Morgan's head. And it's dragging on, so it's giving Morgan time to plan. And that's the big mistake, because Morgan reaches down to his boot and pulls out a knife and stabs Danny in the shoulder and takes his gun from him. Oh, now, man. With Morgan... With Morgan standing over him and Danny on the ground, he's got the gun pointed at his head. And Morgan says, I would fight and die like a man. That's what I would do. Then we flash back to the kid who sold him the gun, reciting the specs of it. And he says, it's got an eight-round capacity, or is it nine? And then another flashback, and we count off every time he fired that gun. It was kind of cool because you see him... You see, some, you see him shoot somebody and the number appears in the middle of the screen. Yeah, it's like Sesame Street or some shit, but really fucked up. <laughs> and he took eight shots. And Danny's saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. And that's when Morgan pulls the trigger, but the gun is empty. It had an eight-round capacity. Danny manages to grab the syringe that Pooh Bear had dropped. And he injects all of that meth right into Morgan's carotid artery. And Morgan, Morgan apparently is not a meth head, so he, he can't handle that much. And he is dying very, very slowly. Yeah, he's just melting there. He fucking fried. Danny finds another gun nearby, and he picks that one up and puts it to his own head, but he can't pull the trigger. So he gets up and walks over to Morgan and he empties the entire clip into Morgan, killing him. Hell yeah. Cut back to the apartment. Tom Van Allen is wearing his suit and hat, holding his trumpet and reciting his mantra. I'm Tom Van Allen and I'm a trumpet player. Behind him, he hears Quincy say, no, nah, bitch, you're Danny Parker and you're a motherfucking rat. And he shoots Tom in the, in the stomach. Tom's cigarette rolls across the floor up against a curtain. Turns out that Quincy is one of the Mexicali boys. And Colette, well, he was for real abusing her. The gang has her daughter held hostage. She's not actually staying with her grandmother. And they were forcing her to be a rat for Tom to find out who that, that, that Danny really was uh, the snitch that sold out their guy. Behind Danny or Tom, the curtain catches fire. Quincy and Colette leave Tom in the burning apartment. So he props himself up against the wall and doesn't try to escape. He just plays his sad trumpet song as the apartment burns around him. Now we're at the back of the beginning of the movie. Yep. And we get some philosophical narration. And it looks like Tom dies. He just kind of falls over. But then he's being carried out of the burning apartment. He says, linoleum? This has got to be hell. Oh, yeah. No, I love that line. And the bad part wasn't being in hell, but the bad part was that hell was so damn cliche. Yeah. Then we see Tom laying on his back on a table. He's being pushed through a hallway with Jimmy walking beside him. They're in a hospital. Tom's alive. Jimmy rescued. In the end, we see him standing by the Salton Sea with his trumpet. He says that Tom got his revenge. Danny got gut shot for being a rat. They're both dead. And this guy is starting a brand new life. And I like his chances. And he throws the trumpet into the Salton Sea and roll credits. Roll credits. And it had a happy ending. 
It did. Uh, weird, demented happy ending, but it did. Yeah, uh, these movies dove typically don't. Yeah. I know it's a little bit more arty than what we usually watch, but yeah, I like movies like this, like little kind of like, uh, I don't know, like like a short novel. You know, it's like, oh, that's, yeah. that was a good story. I like that. Yeah, and it was a good story. I, I did like it. It wasn't told in the most masterful way, but it was a good story. Yeah, well, they really injected a bunch of style. And so you get something that looks really good and feels good, but like when you like really cut into it and you know it's like oh this is this is just pasted together isn't it yeah 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 exactly and honestly i tried to watch no country for old men yeah and that's exactly the way i felt about it it looks like they made a movie and then cut it into little pieces scrambled all the pieces up and taped them back together this uh it's funny you said that because this kind of reminds me of that movie but just from a, a different perspective, like a you know a tweaker perspective, you know, and right, both movies are great, you know. Yeah, all right, man. I think that's a podcast. Oh yeah. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We had a lot of fun making it. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you hear us. You can follow CDF Pod on Facebook and Instagram or at CDF underscore pod on Twitter. You can also visit our website at CDFPod.com. And don't forget you can help us make donations to film schools all across the country by going to Patreon.com slash CDF Pod. Join us next time as we explore another movie so awesome it probably shouldn't have been made. Thank you.